Hi again, and welcome to the Physiology by Physio podcast. As usual, my name is Greg Rodden, and I'll be your host. Physiology by Physio is one of the newest collaborations between Inside the Boards, Physio, and my own podcast, Med School Phys. We help you to gain a richer understanding of physiology and pathophysiology for both your classes and the board exams. Uh, I'd like to start off with an announcement that's been kind of brewing in the background for a while now. So in the next few months, I'll actually be rolling out a project that I've been working on in the background. During the course of 2019, I've been collaborating with two of my friends from Inside the Boards, Chase DeMarco from the Medical Nemesis podcast, as well as Ted O'Connell, writer of the wildly successful Step 2 Secrets book. We've been writing a study skills slash life skills kind of book to help you dominate med school. It'll be called Read This Before You Start Medical School, How to Study Smarter and Live Better While Excelling in Your Classes and on the USMLE or Comlex Board Exams. I admit the title is kind of a mouthful, but that's kind of what you got to do for SEO these days. And I should also note that even though we labeled it as Read This Before Medical School, it's really an amalgamation of pearls from the educational and psychology literature that'll be helpful for anyone at any point in their journey. Uh, We also reference a ton of study strategies, productivity hacks, and services and products that we personally used. Anyways, I'm super excited and proud to share this project with you guys, and I cannot wait for it to hit the shelves in just a few months. We would really love for you to help with getting this project the kickstart that it needs in order to become visible to a wider audience. If you're interested in pre-ordering, if you want to get on our email list, or if you just want to know more about the project, please feel free to email me, greg at insidetheboards.com, all one word. Also, in the show notes for this episode, I'll put in the book blurb so that you can get a better idea of what it's about. And most importantly, if you find this content valuable, take a second to rate, review, and subscribe, and share us with your friends. Okay, with our announcements out of the way, let's move on to today's podcast, which will focus on male reproductive anatomy and embryology that'll be relevant for the USMLE, Comlex, and beyond. Now let's start off the main content of the episode, uh, starting with embryology. The first thing that I should mention here is that the genitourinary systems are often taught together because they share common embryologic origins. In the first 28 days of an embryo's life, the GU system will start to form, originally coming from a portion of the mesoderm on the dorsal surface of the embryo. As these structures begin to differentiate and descend into the left and right flanks, an important little nubbin on them called the urogenital ridge starts to form. And this urogenital ridge will split into two parts, the nephrogenic cord, hence uro, and the genital ridge, hence genital. The nephrogenic cord becomes a series of structures that will form the primitive kidney, hence nephrogenic. But here's where that shared origin comes in. The nephrogenic cords also give rise to an important pair of ducts, which are the the mesonephric or Wolfian duct and the paramesonephric or Mullerian duct. As we'll see, these ducts are super important for the development of internal reproductive structures. Okay, so that was the nephrogenic cord side of things. But don't forget that we also had the genital ridge that came from the urogenital ridge. The genital ridge will become the the gonads, i.e. the testes or ovaries. So again, the genital and urinary systems have common origins. Alright, so when forming the male GU tract and reproductive structures, we've now got the testes, which originally came from the genital ridge. And we've also got those ducts, the Wolfian duct and the paramesonephric duct. I'll try to keep my vocab and terminology consistent throughout this episode, 
for example, when discussing the internal duct systems. For males, the mesonephric or Wolfian duct is what survives. For females, it's the paramesonephric or malarian duct that survives. For consistency's sake, in reference to the male mesonephric duct, I'll use Wolfian duct. Something about male aggression and wolf just go together. And in reference to females, I like to be more formal, so for these, I'll use the more formal term paramesonephric duct. Okay, cool. But in this episode, we're focusing on male repro here, so let's focus on the Wolfian duct. So what do you need to know about the Wolfian duct? Well, you need to know that the Wolfian duct provides the basic plumbing that will connect the descending testes to the urethra, so that when the testes start producing sperm, those sperm will have a nice open lane to get out into the world and be free. So the Wolfian duct provides the plumbing to the urethra to make this happen. Specifically, the Wolfian duct in males will produce four important structures that connect the testes to the urethra. In order, moving from the testes to the urethra, these are the epididymis, and then the ductus deferens, or vas deferens, then the seminal gland, or seminal vesicle, and finally the ejaculatory duct. Then, once the semen passes through that last structure, the ejaculatory duct, it's in the urethra, and it's ready to spread its wings and fly out into the world, and the cycle of life goes on. Okay, I'll stop being immature. So the structures of the Wolfian duct connect the testes to the urethra in males. One handy mnemonic that people use to memorize these structures, the Wolfian duct helps males to spread their seed. S for seminal gland or seminal vesicle, E for epididymis, E again for ejaculatory duct, and D for ductus deferens. But just remember that this seed mnemonic doesn't have the Wolfian duct structures in order of their appearance to the great migration of the sperm. Okay, cool. So the last embryo thing I wanted to mention here is just a general comment about how the genital and urinary tracts are often taught together because they share some structures. One of those shared structures in males is the urethra, which comes from the endodermal portion of a structure called the urogenital sinus. As you know, the urethra in males serves as a common exit for both urine and semen. So it's not super surprising that the urogenital sinus is also where the bladder comes from. Given how the genital and urinary systems share structures, their plumbing will come together at a point of confluence, which in males is the, well, the semen and the urine would meet at the prostatic urethra. So something interesting about how all of these structures are mashed together is that the prostate serves dual roles for the urinary and genital system. For the urinary side of things, the prostate helps to limit urine release from the bladder. And from the genital side of things, the prostate serves as a gland that will provide nutrients and other goodies for the sperm before ejaculation out of the urethra. On average, there's about 3.5 mLs of semen in ejaculate, and only 4% of the total semen is sperm. Along the way, other components get added, like fructose for energy for the sperm, and alkaline buffers that help protect the little sperm from the acidic vaginal environment. The prostate gland and the bulbourethral gland, also known as Cowper's gland, contribute to some of the semen, but the seminal gland provides the largest fraction, about 70% of the total. Okay, so those were some fun facts. What's not so fun is that the prostate commonly gets enlarged, particularly as men age, and this will obstruct urinary output and produce unpleasant symptoms like nocturia, straining, dribbling, and incomplete voiding. We'll discuss BPH a little bit more later in the episode. For now, let's summarize this section. We've mentioned that the urinary sinus is the origin of the bladder, the urethra, and the prostate. 
and the seed structures of the Wolfian duct will provide plumbing to connect the descending testes to the common exit, which is the urethra, at the level of the prostate gland. The seminal gland and prostate gland provide most of the bulk of the semen, and only about 4% of semen is sperm. Awesome. Now that the more hardcore embryo stuff is out of the way, I think it'll be instructive to take a moment and just zoom out and see the anatomy of the male GU system by briefly comparing the overall flow of urine versus sperm. Okay, so first up, the urinary pathway. So urine is produced in the nephron in the kidneys, and then it will eventually get into the ureters and end up in the bladder. Urine will then sit in the bladder until we're ready to burst, and it'll pass into the prostatic urethra, then past the membranous urethra, and finally out the penile urethra. Okay, now let's compare this to the pathway of sperm. So where do we start? Well, sperm are produced in the seminiferous tubules of each testicle, and then they'll pass into the Wolfian duct structures, starting with the epididymis, and then the ductus deferens, and then finally out to the ejaculatory duct at the level of the prostate. Then we're in totally shared territory here again at the prostatic urethra, and finally, the sperm will pass through the membranous urethra and penile urethra, like the urine, to get out into the world. Hey guys, it's Greg from ITB. Uh, I just wanted to cut in for a moment and say that you should seriously go check out the great work that's being done by the guys at Physio. So Physio is the only resource to combine concise mnemonic sketches with cohesive conceptual explanations in their videos. And as an update for everyone, they just finished up their microbiology section. Like, it's totally done, including 40 pathogens not covered by the Sketchy Micro program. No offense, Sketchy, you guys are awesome too. Also, you should know that accompanying each video, there are Anki flashcard decks that you can use too. And their textbook is totally done. So bottom line of all of this, keep calm and watch Physio. Okay, now back to the show. Okay, now I'm going to hand this off to the guys from Physio to cover some high-yield clinical anatomy, including topics like straddle injury, pelvic fracture, BPH, and more. A solid understanding of the course of the urethra is important as it relates to urethral injury, and there are two categories of urethral injury, straddle injury and pelvic fracture. Now, straddle injury occurs when the soft genital structures are compressed forcefully up against the hard bony structures of the pelvis. For example, if someone is riding a horse and the horse jumps over a cliff and the person's body then smashes down forcefully against the genitals, for example, with the pubic bone, then this can damage the urethra. And if it does damage the urethra, it's likely the anterior urethra. So let's say the pubic bone smashes down against the anterior urethra and damages it. Where do you think blood would accumulate? Well, it would mainly pool here in the scrotum. And on physical exam, you will find blood in the scrotum. Now let's talk about pelvic fractures. In a traumatic accident, such as a motor vehicle accident, the posterior urethra can be damaged. Notice we have the prostate, so that first part would be the prostatic urethra, and as it goes down, we have the membranous urethra. Now this membranous part is not surrounded by a firm supporting structure like the prostate above, or the bulbous musculature below. This makes the membranous segment vulnerable to tearing in the case of a pelvic fracture. If a pelvic fracture is severe enough, the pelvis can shift upward and forward, shearing the membranous urethra. If this occurs, blood will accumulate in this retropubic space and all of this blood will force the prostate up superiorly. On exam, this can be felt as a high-riding prostate, and it can also feel boggy. This means that the physician can place his or her finger right here in the rectum, 
and can notice that the prostate is higher than normal and more soft and boggy than normal. Pelvic fractures can lead to posterior or membranous urethral injuries, and this can lead to blood in the retropubic space, which again causes the prostate to be pushed superiorly and it can feel boggy. Now let's do a question to apply what you've learned so far. A six-year-old boy is brought to the emergency department following a playground accident. His mother states she didn't see what happened, but saw the boy crying on the ground near some tall playground equipment. On physical exam, the penis appears swollen and the scrotum appears fluid-filled throughout. The physician suspects a urethral injury. Assuming the physician is correct, is a pelvic fracture or a straddle injury more likely? Now, theoretically, on a playground, a small child could sustain a saddle injury or a pelvic fracture. However, a pelvic fracture is very unlikely without something large and with a lot of momentum, like a car or a large collapsing structure. So the saddle injury is more likely. Hopefully, you also notice that the physical exam is consistent with an anterior urethral injury. After all, the question stem states the penis appears swollen and the scrotum appears fluid-filled. The scrotum filled with fluid likely bloody fluid, is a dead giveaway that the anterior urethra was damaged. Now let's talk more about the prostate. The prostate can undergo hyperplasia. This would lead to urinary symptoms. And that's because the portion of the prostate that undergoes hyperplasia is closer to the urethra. Next, we can have prostate cancer. And this can also lead to urinary symptoms, if it gets large enough. But it's more likely that prostate cancer would present with back pain from prostate metastases via the vertebral venous plexus. This vertebral venous plexus is valveless, bidirectional, and indirectly connected to the prostatic plexus down below. This means that cancers from the prostate can travel to the internal iliac vein and then to the vertebral venous plexus and seed the vertebral bodies, and this can present as back pain. Now let's talk about the testicles. The main pathology of the testicles that relies heavily on a proper understanding of anatomy is testicular torsion. In this condition, the testicles wrap around the spermatic cord and cause ischemia. The testicular artery and vein will travel through the inguinal canal with the spermatic cord. If these vessels get twisted around the spermatic cord, this can cause ischemia of the testes. Another important note is that lymph from the testes will drain to the paraaortic lymph nodes. Lymph from the testes will drain to these paraaortic nodes. And this makes sense logically. After all, the arteries and veins originate from the aorta. So that means that infection or cancer from the testes can travel to these paraaortic nodes. Now let's discuss the scrotum. There are two scrotum-related pathologies that rely heavily on anatomy, varicocil and hydrocil. Varicocil results from a dilation of the pampiniform plexus. And if there's blockage of the pampiniform plexus, then the plexus will build up with blood and feel like a bag of worms. Now, sometimes varicocil and hydrocil can be confused because they're both causing enlargement of the scrotum. But a hydrocil results from fluid collecting around the tunica vaginalis because it didn't seal up properly. So it's actually not called a tunica vaginalis. It's called a patent processus vaginalis. If patent, then serous fluid, basically water, can accumulate around the testis. Now imagine that you're shining a light through this fluid. You would see the light easily, right? So we would say that the fluid does transilluminate. Conversely, if you palpate a fluid-filled scrotum and then shine a light through it and do not see light coming through the other side, assume that the fluid is not water and is more likely blood, which would indicate a varicocil. Plus, when you palpate the scrotum in a varicocil, you'll feel that bag of worms. 
The last item to discuss is the lymph drainage of the scrotum. It drains to the superficial inguinal nodes. Again, we have the scrotum, and notice all the lymph drains to these superficial inguinal nodes. So again, the testicles receive blood from the testicular arteries, which come from the aorta, and so the lymph would drain back to the same area. So testicular lymph drains to the paraaortic nodes, and the scrotum drains to the superficial inguinal nodes. Now let's do a question to apply what you've learned. A 33-year-old male is referred to an oncologist for possible testicular cancer. On physical exam, the oncologist palpates a genital mass as well as nearby palpable nodes. The superficial inguinal nodes on the patient's left side are tender and swollen. What does the physical exam indicate with regards to possible testicular cancer? Okay, do the superficial inguinal nodes receive lymph from the testicles? Nope, they receive lymph from the scrotum. Hopefully you've noticed that the superficial inguinal nodes are tender. This usually indicates an infectious etiology. So we're thinking of a pathology of the scrotum. And since it's a mass, it could be an abscess. And we're thinking infectious because of that tenderness. So going back to our question, what does the physical exam indicate with regards to possible testicular cancer? Makes it unlikely. Okay, and the time has arrived for the big reveal that was promised. For ITB listeners, we were able to secure you a limited time 25% discount if you enter the code ITB25, as in 25%, at checkout. This code is good for 25% off your physio subscription, but it's only valid for one month from the time that this episode airs. So again, that's ITB25 for an exclusive 25% discount on a physio subscription from yours truly at Inside the Boards. Up next, we'll close out the episode with a board-style practice question. You ready? A 30-year-old male presents to the emergency department complaining of left-sided testicular pain that started suddenly two hours ago. He says that over the last 24 hours, he noticed mild swelling, redness, and discomfort, but he hoped it would go away. Earlier this morning, he noticed the swelling was worse and it was tender to palpation. Then, two hours ago, he started feeling significant pain that prompted him to seek medical attention. Nothing like this has ever happened to him before. His past medical history is unremarkable. Social history reveals that he's sexually active, he admits to four partners in the last two weeks, and he occasionally drinks alcohol. Review of systems is positive for subjective fever and chills, but negative for dysuria and discharge. Vitals show mild tachycardia and hypertension. He is afebrile with a temperature of 99 degrees Fahrenheit. Physical exam revealed that the left testicle is red and swollen and tender to palpation. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, urethritis, B, epididymitis, C, testicular torsion, or D, varicocele? And the correct answer is B, epididymitis. So acute epididymitis is inflammation and infection of the epididymis. It produces significant swelling, pain, and tenderness palpation, presenting similarly to testicular torsion. So with a patient like this, you should definitely be able to distinguish between the two. Torsion is an emergency that will likely need to see surgery within six hours of onset, while epididymitis can be handled outpatient. Acute epididymitis has symptoms like gradual onset of testicular pain and swelling, fever, and sometimes voiding symptoms. In men under 35 years old, acute epididymitis is most commonly due to bugs like Neisseria gonorrhea or chlamydia. 
But after 35, it's usually due to enteric gram negatives, especially E. coli. This distinction matters because it affects the empiric treatment of acute epididymitis. Under 35, we essentially treat it like an STI, giving ceftriaxone IM to cover for gonococcus and doxycycline to cover for chlamydia. Over 35, we give agents to cover gram-negative rods, typically fluoroquinolones. If you don't treat, then you risk spreading the infection, producing orchitis and even infertility. Formal diagnosis of acute epididymitis is usually made with Doppler ultrasound, showing increased blood flow, i.e. inflammation, to the affected epididymis. The Doppler ultrasound would also rule out testicular torsion, which would show decreased blood flow. Okay, so for the other answer choices, uh, urethritis. Even though he's sexually active, you can rule out urethritis because his pain is in the wrong place for that, and review of systems showed no discharge or pain with urination. Next answer choice, uh, testicular torsion. So this was probably the best distractor because he has a swollen and very painful testicle. However, the pain with testicular torsion is usually much more abrupt than what he was complaining of, and they're usually nauseated and may have vomited as well. And last answer choice, varicocele. We didn't cover varicocele yet, so I wanted to throw it in here. What is a varicocele? Well, it's dilation of the venous pampiniform plexus that produces a large, soft scrotal mass. It may look like a bag of worms. Although varicocele is more common on the left side, it produces a dull, achy pain, not nearly the level of pain this patient seems to be experiencing. Varicocele also wouldn't explain the subjective fevers and chills. And guess what? We've reached the end of the episode. So I hope you enjoyed it, I hope you learned something, and I'll see you all next time.